Are demons real? Uh, do you need to be worried about demons and evil spirits? Every time October 31st comes around, there's an abundance of attention uh, given to spirits. I mean, this, there's even a whole Halloween store called Spirit. Uh, many of them are, are presented as being hostile spirits, ones that you need to be afraid of. They're out to harm us. They're out to haunt the dark spaces and to terrorize us. And so many horror films have to do with supernatural powers and demons and possession. Well, the Word of God helps us think rightly about the unseen spiritual realm. There are spirits. Of course, God is the creator of all, and God has created humanity, and yet God has also created other spiritual beings, angels, and of those angels, there are fallen angels that we call demons. And the Bible speaks clearly and, and reckons rightly about these things. In our, in our society, uh, where we've been heavily influenced by Darwinian naturalism over the past 100 years, uh, 150 years or so, there has been kind of a, an underemphasis. We, we don't really reckon rightly with the spiritual realm, and yet people kind of know. Every time Halloween rolls around, you, you see that people, people kind of know that there's a lot of activity out there, and many of, much of which we're afraid of. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 8. In our message today, we're going to see God's servants, Moses and Aaron, up against what is really spiritual powers of darkness that were resident in ancient Egypt. We'll consider some of what God has to teach us about evil spirits who oppose God and God's servants, uh, often empowering uh, human beings to oppose God and his servants. We'll also see God's ultimate triumph over them. And so Exodus chapter 8, if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to page 47 in that Pew Bible, Exodus chapter 8. If you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, just know that the big bold numbers are the chapter numbers, the small uh, superscript numbers, those are the verses. Exodus 8. Now, we read uh, some of this text earlier, but we're going to continue on reading this account of the plagues, the plagues of Egypt. And, you know, so far as, as we read a moment ago, um, we, we saw God bringing the first few plagues. There, there was that initial sign that God gave to Pharaoh of the staff turned into a serpent. And then there was the plague of the Nile turning to blood and the frogs and as we read the plagues, these are all about the power of God, how Yahweh God is greater and mightier than all the, the so-called gods of Egypt and all the magicians of Egypt and even Pharaoh himself. And leading up to these plagues, Pharaoh had arrogantly refused God's demand to let the people of Israel go, to release them from their slavery. He said, in response to Moses and Aaron, God's messengers, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
And God had responded to Pharaoh's arrogance uh, in a text we read last week, Exodus 7, 5. He said, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Men would oppose God's plan. Demons would oppose him, but they are no match for God because there is no one like him. There is no one like the Lord our God. As Moses says to Pharaoh in chapter 8, verse 10, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And so in this, as, as we come to the plagues section of the book of Exodus, we're going to cover the plagues in, in two parts, in two sermons. This, this Sunday, uh, this morning, I'm going to talk about the plagues, and we're going to think about how God put to shame the magicians and the evil uh, spiritual powers that were behind them, the gods of Egypt. And then in our next message, we're going to come back and, and we're going to think about how God humbled Pharaoh and how God overcame human opposition the supreme power of God over Pharaoh himself. So that's where we're going this week and next. If you have your place, let's pick up where we left off in the scripture reading earlier. We're going to pick up in uh, chapter 8 and verse 16. We're going to read down to chapter 9 and verse 12. So if you have your place, Exodus 8, starting in verse 16, I'm going to ask, would you please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word? Exodus 8, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The Egyptians tried, or the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. 
Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air and the side of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You may be seated. Well, in this passage, in taking into consideration the the part of it that we read previously, beginning in chapter 7, there's a kind of contest between Aaron and Moses, the servants of God, and Pharaoh's magicians who use their sorcery to try to replicate these wonders and oppose God's servants. And as the story unfolds, their initial power is finally exposed as weakness before the Almighty God. And in this way, God demonstrates his superiority over the magicians and all their powers as well as those of the gods of Egypt. All supernatural powers, all spiritual forces are no match for him who rules from the highest heaven to the lowest hell. And that's that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So if you're taking notes, here's kind of a road map of where we're going. First of all, we'll consider that as we follow Christ... We will be opposed. We will be opposed, just as Moses and Aaron were, and not just by people, but even by, even by spiritual beings. We will be opposed as we follow Christ. Secondly, we'll consider that these opponents may seem powerful. These opponents may seem powerful. But thirdly, we'll consider that though they may seem powerful, they're no match for our God. They are no match for our God. So kind of to sum up the the main lesson of this message this morning is this, that God's opponents may seem powerful at first, but they are no match 
for the Lord our God. God's opponents may seem powerful at first, but they are no match for God. And so first of all, as our, as our first point this morning, let's consider the reality of opposition, the reality of opposition. As we follow Christ, we will be opposed, just as Moses and Aaron were opposed by Pharaoh's magicians. The New Testament book of 2 Timothy speaks of this, and it uses these Egyptian magicians and their opposition to Moses as an illustration. As these, this is kind of like proverbial of what the people of God can expect to face. Um, they, they, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul informed his young ministry colleague Timothy of the difficulty to be faced in the last days. In Timothy's own time, and no less so in our time, in, in these last days. And so Paul tells Timothy to understand that there will, there will be times of difficulty because of these people, these, these opponents of the truth. He writes in 2 Timothy 3.8, quote, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, Janus and Jambres are just traditional names given uh, to the head magicians of Pharaoh's court, those that we read about in our text that are competing with Moses and Aaron with their own signs and wonders. But what this text in, in 2 Timothy shows us is that, brothers and sisters, we can expect to face opposition. We need to understand the difficulty that we'll face so that we're not surprised by it, so that we're not dismayed and thrown into retreat. As we work the work that God has set before us, fulfilling the Great Commission, as we spread the gospel message, as we make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, we will be opposed. We'll be opposed by spiritual powers. We'll be opposed by demonic powers. By people, yes, but by people that either, whether they know it or not, knowingly or unknowingly, are being empowered against us by supernatural evil spirits. Evil spirits who deceive them into doing their bidding, and often in such a way that these people think of themselves as agents of righteousness and, and justice and goodness. So listen to Ephesians 6.12. This is instructing believers, and it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's, that's what we're up against. Cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. We don't just face uh, evil governments and, and plotting deep state conspirators. We face spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That sounds rather frightening. That sounds rather daunting. That there, as you do the work of God, as you seek to raise your children right, as you seek to share the gospel with your neighbor, as you seek to live a Christian life in this world, that demons will be fighting against you. At other times, uh, at, at times as we, as we live in this world, 
That opposition will be subtle. We won't really, we won't really see it. It won't be like in our face. Maybe uh, people will be just be slandering us. There'll be passive-aggressive things going on. But at other times, we'll face intimidations and, and threats. People might get in our faces and get angry with us as we try to share the gospel. But as we spread the gospel, as we make disciples for Christ, we will be opposed, and not just by people. We'll be opposed by invisible spiritual beings. There's a war going on, and, and so much of it is invisible to our eyes. So that's just the, the first point, the reality of opposition. We will be opposed as we seek to do God's will in this world. But secondly, let's consider the seeming power of our opposition, the seeming power of our opposition. They, they seem powerful. And looking to our Exodus text, you know, beginning with the confrontation with Pharaoh in, in chapter 7 and verse 8, if you look there, uh, we see that in this initial encounter with Pharaoh, when he asks for a sign, Moses and Aaron, they give him the sign. Here's the skeptic, he's saying, hey, prove it, you know, prove that you're from God. And, and they throw down their staff and it becomes a serpent. And then Pharaoh believes and says, oh, that's just the sign I was looking for. And now I'll let the people go. Now, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, he didn't have just a, an evidence problem. He had a moral problem. He did not want to obey God. And so he would find whatever excuses he could find to disbelieve. And so, though, they, though he asked for a sign and though they gave him a sign, that wasn't good enough. Here we see Pharaoh, Pharaoh went after his, his sorcerers, his, his quote-unquote wise men, his magicians, to try and replicate the sign that Moses and Aaron had, had given. And to our surprise, as we read it, they do. They throw down their staves, and guess what? The, the wooden rods in their hands become serpents. Chapter 7, verse 11. When Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. The way that's written, I don't think that this was just some sleight of hand, some illusion. It says they did the same as Moses and Aaron. It says, and then it explains in verse 12, for each man cast down his, his staff, not his, not his serpent that was you know, in a stiff position and just looked like his staff. No, they cast down their staff just like Moses and Aaron had done, just like Aaron had done, and they became serpents. Well, how about that? How, how do we explain that? So Moses and Aaron's sign wasn't so unique after all. Well, no doubt this would have tested Moses and Aaron's faith, don't you think? And yet, what we see here is this, that, that their opponents, they seemed powerful. They seemed like they had the same power that Moses and Aaron did. This is, this is beyond normal human power. You know, the best illusionist in the world they can make you think that they're pulling a rabbit out of the hat and, and whatnot, but the best illusionist in the world it doesn't have the, the power to actually turn an inanimate piece of wood into a living cobra. 
What we have here is not just some sleight of hand. We have here supernatural power. These magicians evidently were masters of the occult. They had power beyond what was natural and human. Not only do they turn their rods into serpents as we come to the first plague, the the water of the Nile River is turned into blood, and, and these men do the same likewise, it says. I mean, just think about that for a moment. There's blood throughout the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? But then in verse, uh, chapter 7 and verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And once again, Pharaoh finds the excuse he was looking for. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then, and then again with the next plague, with the, the plague of frogs. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 7, Pharaoh's wizards are able to copy the the sign again. It says that the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. These guys seemed just as powerful as Moses and Aaron. In Deuteronomy 13, God warned his people, Israel, to be ready for tests. That there would be times when their faith would be tested even with miracles, even with signs and wonders worked by false prophets. It's not just true prophets that work miracles. No, Deuteronomy 13 says that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and and serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What this shows us is that God sometimes allows even false prophets, even the servants of darkness, to have miraculous powers and do miraculous things. Friends, don't believe everything you see, even even if you saw an actual miracle before your very eyes, that miracle may be in the service of a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2 in the New Testament warns of the coming of the lawless one, commonly known as the Antichrist. But it says that this, this lawless one, whoever this figure is, that he comes by the activity of Satan, and he comes with all power and false signs and wonders. With all power and false signs and wonders. Wonders, you know, it's a synonym for miracles. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So here we have again more miracles in the service of this man of lawlessness, this false prophet, this agent of Satan. And the purpose of these, it says, is is to deceive those who are perishing. Those who 2 Thessalonians says have, quote, refused to love the truth and so be saved. Those who, like Pharaoh, hated the truth and ran from the truth and looked for any excuse they could not to believe the truth, well, guess what? They reach a point where God says, okay, 
I'll let you go. I'll, I'll let you have the lie that you're seeking. And even when Pharaoh's, even when Pharaoh's magicians, even, you notice even when they're exposed as powerless, you know, even, even at the beginning, notice that their, their serpent, their staffs do turn into serpents, but what happens next? Aaron's serpent eats theirs. Well, Pharaoh just kind of overlooks that, that bad omen of like this superiority of God's power over his magicians. He, he kind of just overlooks that. He stubbornly refused. And even, even as the story progresses and his magicians are humbled, when they can't keep up, even when they tell him, this is the finger of God, he still stubbornly refused God. And many like Pharaoh are and will be given over to the lies that they stubbornly clung to. Those who continue to resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who, who continually turn a deaf ear to God's warnings and continue to find excuses for their sin and, and their skepticism. They, they reach the point where God finally hands them over to the power of deception. And they become hardened in their deception like drying concrete. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12 says of these people, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so part of this strong delusion, this great deception that they're handed over to as an act of judgment because of their hatred of the truth, it includes false signs and miracles, wonders, done by, uh, according to the, the agent of Satan and the, the activity of Satan, to give them the excuses, the convenient excuses that they were looking for to believe the lies that they so loved. Jesus also speaks of, of this, of in Matthew 24 and verse 24, he said, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even believers. False prophets performing great signs and wonders. Listen, the, the, the point is not all miracles are from God. Even false prophets, even agents of Satan are permitted by God to have certain powers and to do certain supernatural things for the testing of the faith of God's people and for the judgment of those who refuse to repent. As we live in this world, we'll face opposition, sometimes very powerful opposition, sometimes supernatural and miraculous opposition, opposition that would be too great for us in our own strength. And so, just by way of application, brothers and sisters, you who believe on Christ, this tells us two things. First of all, A, we need God's strength to overcome. If we're proud and presumptuous, if we neglect prayer, we walk in our own strength, the Lord and His discipline may allow us to be beaten and temporarily confused and troubled by Satan's forces though he will not forsake those who have trusted in him. Yet he may, he may allow us, in order to teach us a lesson, to suffer defeat for a time. 
Here's the admonition from Ephesians 6 in light of the supernatural enemies we face. You know, those, those cosmic powers, those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's what it says in that context. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Not our might, his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Brothers and sisters, put on the whole armor of God because you don't want to face these powers without your heavenly armor, without your heavenly armament. Put on the whole armor of God. And a good place to begin, study Ephesians 6. Study this passage about the whole armor of God. Memorize it, pray it, and thank God for it that he gives us such heavenly weaponry to fight this spiritual warfare. So we need God's strength to overcome, but, but B, secondly, uh, we don't need to fear. This is our, our second just application about the opposition we face is we don't need to fear because 1 John 4, 4 says, he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, if you are a believer, then you have the Holy Spirit of God within you and he is greater than Satan and all of Satan's demons combined. We don't need to tremble in terror about evil spirits. Their strength is weakness when God is on our side. They tremble before him. The Bible says that, that the demons tremble. The demons are terrified of God. If we fear the Lord, we need not fear Satan. If we tremble before the Lord, we need not tremble before the devils. We who believe on the Lord have reason for confidence. This brings us to our our third point. We've considered the reality of opposition. We've we've considered the seeming power of our opposition. And thirdly, let's consider that though these opponents may seem powerful, they are no match for our God. They are no match for our God. And we see this as the text, as the story unfolds. You notice in chapter 8, when Pharaoh wants the frogs removed, notice what he does. He doesn't go to his magicians, or maybe he did and it just doesn't record it for us. But evidently, the magicians, they could, they could bring more frogs, but they couldn't actually stop God's plague from happening. They could make the plague worse, right? Uh, I mean, they're just making it worse for the Egyptians. They're bringing more frogs, frogs upon frogs, but they can't get rid of the frogs, evidently. And so when Pharaoh seeks relief, what does he do? He goes, he goes cap in hand to Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and from my people. What's wrong, Pharaoh? I thought you had your gods to help you. I thought you had your magicians. Couldn't your mighty magicians deal with this infestation? I guess not. And then in the next plague, the plague of the gnats, or mosquitoes, as the word can signify as well, whatever these small biting insects were, these, these come from the dust of the ground. I mean, just imagine that for a moment. What must that have looked like when uh, that, that rod struck the ground and all of a sudden the dust of the ground just started rising up into these dark clouds of biting insects? That would be, man. So, but, but when Moses strikes 
the, or when Aaron strikes the ground with his staff, and by a kind of rapid supernatural evolution that God worked, turning this dust, these non-living particles of dirt, and they suddenly sprouted wings and began to move and fly. And you might say, well, that's scientifically impossible. Well, it's not because we're talking about a miracle here. The God, of, uh, the God who made dirt out of nothing, who made matter to begin with, he can change the form of matter. And so by his word, he, he caused this, this inanimate particles of dirt to turn into, into dust, into uh, these biting insects. But notice the, the magicians, once again, they try here, but this time they fail. They can't, they can't even replicate this now. And having failed, they're forced to admit in chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. And of course, Pharaoh still doesn't believe, even now that his excuses had run out. We're going to think about, more about that next week. But here we see the magicians now have been soundly defeated. They're, they're even admitting defeat. This is the finger of God. And they're, they're, the magicians, after this, they're not even mentioned for two more plagues, the, the flies and the, the livestock dying. But after God strikes the Egyptians with the plague of flies and with the, this uh, disease that killed their livestock, the next plague that follows is a plague of boils, these painful skin infections on man and animals. And we're told in chapter 9, verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. They couldn't even stand before Moses. 2 Timothy 3, speaking of the the wicked men who will oppose gospel ministry, it says that like Janus and Jambres, like those magicians who opposed Moses, they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Their folly will be plain to all, covered in painful boils. They're unable, unable to even stand before Moses. And the magicians, are, they're not mentioned anymore after this. This is the, the last we see of them is they're, they're laid out, covered with boils, unable to even come out and stand in public, unable to replicate God's wonders any longer unable to even appear before God's prophet on their own two feet. Their folly was plain to all. And so will be the folly of all who oppose the truth of God and work for the evil one. All who use the, the power of darkness and the power of this world to try to validate their message and seek to undermine God's word. They will meet a similar end, a painful and shameful any power they have for a time is only on lease from God, who moment by moment upholds them in existence. The only, as, as one theologian put it well, when considering how the magicians, they did do some pretty amazing things for a time. But he, he points out this, they only were able to do those things because the Almighty allowed them. For his, for his own purpose, for a time. He says, quote, We must be assured that not even a fly can be created except by God only, but that Satan lays hold 
for the purpose of his deceptions, of things which are done by the secret judgment of God. In other words, they could only do these things because God, for his own purposes, which he doesn't really elaborate on completely, perhaps it was to test Moses and Aaron's faith, but for his own purposes, God, God gave them the ability to work these wonders for a time. Yahweh has no real rivals. There is no one like the Lord our God. As I said, we who believe in the Lord, we have reason for confidence. By ourselves and our own strength, we may as well face a pack of hungry timber wolves with nothing but our bare hands, helpless. But in Christ, in Christ, we're safer than if we were in the, in the cockpit of an Apache helicopter buzzing over those timber wolves, fully armed with an M230 chain gun and Hellfire missiles and Hydra rocket pods. They are helpless. So before we move on, before we move on, we, we should just note God's sound defeat of these magicians, these sorcerers, and the evil powers behind them. But we should also note a message that, that we tend to miss, but that would have been clear to the Egyptians. In, in all of these plagues, God was judging their gods, their air quote gods, which the, the New Testament shows that when people are worshiping idols, when they're worshiping gods, they're actually making sacrifices to demons. But God was judging these, these, these fallen angels, these spiritual forces that, they, that the Egyptians worshiped. The Egyptians viewed the Nile as sacred. They, they viewed the Nile as sacred. It was, their, it was the lifeline of Egypt. And guess what God does? He turns that lifeline into blood. And there's nothing that their God of the Nile could do about it. The, the Egyptians had a frog god named Heket, the, the goddess of fertility. And God scorned their reverence for Heket, first by causing the frogs to multiply so much that the Egyptians were praying to get rid of them, and then by killing them off, causing the land to be just riddled with these huge mountains of stinking dead frogs. Furthermore, people in ancient times often, they, they believed that, that different regions, different parts of, of the world were ruled by different gods. And, you know, if, if your god kind of got out of his territory, he would have no jurisdiction, if you will, in the territory of other gods. You'd have to kind of, you know, be, get on those gods' good side. But here, God demonstrates his superiority to the gods of Egypt in Egypt. He turns the, the water into blood, and he shows that he's, he's sovereign over the water, and he's He's sovereign over the dry ground as well as he turns the dust into gnats. And this just demonstrates that these supposed gods of Egypt, they were unable to protect their turf against Yahweh, the true God of all the earth, the only creator and, and true sovereign. They demonstrated, th these plagues were demonstrating that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the only one who is worthy of worship. He rules over the water and the dry ground 
As one theologian famously put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The gods of Egypt and the demonic powers that were behind them, they were no match for Yahweh. God has no real rivals. There is no one like the Lord our God. And so as we, as we wrap things up this morning, this points us in closing to another even greater triumph of God over Satan and, and the demons. Colossians 2.15, written in the context of what the cross of Christ accomplished, it frames the, the redemption worked by Jesus at the cross as yet another victory of God over the demons, over the spiritual forces. It says in Colossians 2.15 that, that he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities are most likely spiritual powers that enslaved us in our sin prior to our salvation in Christ. And Ephesians 2 is another text that says that before God saved us, we were in fact following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But these demonic tyrants that once enslaved us, they're no match for God. God disarmed them triumphing over them in Christ. In the God-man, the promised offspring of the woman who, who in Genesis 3.15 was prophesied to crush the head of the serpent, the devil, he did so by himself, being put on that cross and dying in our place. In Christ, Yahweh in human flesh triumphed over the dark powers. He he. In both his earthly ministry, as he withstood the temptations of Satan, and as he cast out demons wherever he went, and then in his death on the cross, on the cross, God disarmed those rulers and authorities. Christ as our substitute, as he was disarmed on the cross, he was actually disarming the devil. He was paying the debt of sin, the wages of sin, which were death and hell, under the wrath of God, as, he, as we were debtors to God's justice, eternal debtors to his infinite justice. You see, that was Satan's weapon against us. That's, that's, what, that's what gave him at one time power, the power of death over us, as the book of Hebrews says. You see, Satan could come before God, could stand in God's court and, and demand that we be sentenced, that we be thrown in hell. He wouldn't have to actually do anything to us because God's justice would demand that we be punished. All Satan would have to do is, is just point out, God, you, you're true to your word. You can't lie. You're faithful. Your justice demands the punishment of these sinners who have broken your law. But on the cross, Christ took that away from the accuser of the brethren. He, he disarmed him. Because the justice that demanded our, our death, that justice was satisfied in the death of Christ, our substitute. Hebrews 2.14 explains that through death, through his own death, Jesus 
the God-man destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, so as to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For those who believe in Christ, those united to him by faith, we no longer have any sin debt, and therefore we are delivered from the slavery of death. The sins that we've done in the past, the darkest of them that we're ashamed even to think of, Christ's blood covers them, his death for ours. And when Christ comes again, our bodies will rise. We will not go to the second death. The curse of death does not remain on us because Christ took that curse for us. The rap sheet against us was long. The charges against us were true in God's court, and yet justice has been satisfied. The bottom of that rap sheet says, paid in full by the blood of Christ. There is nothing left to pay. In fact, to demand further payment, further punishment, would be an injustice. If God were to punish those whose sins have already been covered in the blood of Christ, it would be to punish the innocent rather than to punish the righteous. For this is what we have become, we who believe. We have become not only innocent but righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his deeds counting for us. Praise be to God. Who is like the Lord our God? Unmatched in power, but praise be to God, also unmatched in grace and mercy, even towards us who were his adversaries. He's able to crush his enemies, and yet in his grace he chose to love us, to save us, to pardon us, though we by our sin had become hostile to him. And the, the day is coming when he will come again and purge this world of every evil. He will carry out the sentence that God's justice demands on the devil on all of the demons, and on all those who did not repent and believe on Christ the Savior. The demons, they will oppose God. They will oppose God's people in this world for a time. But that time is limited according to the decree of God. They may seem powerful, but they're no match for the Lord our God. If He is for us, who can stand against us? And so, friend, if, if this is your God, if He is your Savior, if He is your Savior, you have nothing to fear. But friend, is He your Savior this morning? Is Jesus the one you are looking to and trusting in for salvation from your sin? If you, in your sin, if you remain in your sin, you will be condemned and punished along with Satan and the demons, just as Jesus himself warned in no uncertain terms. But if you humble yourself before God, if you confess your sin to him, if you plead for his mercy for the sake of Christ, for, his, for the sake of his blood shed for sinners such as you, his death on the cross, your only hope, your only plea, well, listen to his words. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, believes in the Son, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I pray that if you have not believed on his name this morning that you would do so even now. Look to him and be saved.